Hello and welcome to Ford at Earth, a weekly climate change, environment and sustainability podcast. You're making me laugh. This is not going well. <laughs> uh, making big issues bite size and exploring the things that we can do to make a little bit of a big difference. Now, sometimes we break down topics, sometimes we sit down with academics and sometimes we just talk to incredible people doing incredible planet saving things. And that is exactly what we're doing today. So I am talking to Tori Choi. Photographer, videographer, and general badass climate change activist. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, gosh. I am really, really excited to be here. We we were just remarking that it's taken how long to kind of instigate this and get me on the podcast since the summer last year. It's been since summer, hasn't it? It's a good six, eight, I don't even know. Yeah. serious months. just kind of disappeared off the face of the planet or rather just like traversed to the other side of the world which kind of makes it difficult well let's start with that then so obviously yes you're on the <laughs> podcast but you're not in bristol with me you're in colombia yeah in in colombia in south america oh T- tell me about the journey right this this is the the fabled journey yeah. uh i sailed to south america i set sail on october 2nd it's quite some time ago 2019 now. gosh last year and I lived on a sailboat for three months and I was part of a project called Sail to the Cop, which, as it says on the tin, basically mm-hmm. uh, our intention was to go to the UN Climate Conference, COP25, which was due to take place in Santiago, Chile. And halfway through the journey, precisely in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, we found out that the conference got relocated to Madrid. Yes. Which was just... How on earth did... How did that feel? Yeah. Because, I mean, that was your whole point and purpose, wasn't it? You're, you're literally in the middle of the Atlantic. Oh, God. That must have just been such a shock. It, it was, yeah, truly. I mean, there were tears shed, people gobsmacked. You know, we'd been on this boat for, I think, about five weeks, and... There had been so many highs and lows and the core team who basically facilitated this whole project had been working on this for a year. So for them to find out that news, it was just heartbreaking. And, you know, for good reason, the, the conference got moved to Madrid because there was a lot of civil unrest in Chile and essentially it just would not have been safe for us to go. Um, And it was a very last minute thing. So there wasn't really much scope for us to return back to Europe to make it in time for Madrid Mm. because the winds just wouldn't allow it. That's, I mean, the beauty, but also the inconvenience of traveling like that is that you're really reliant on the weather Mm. and you're at the mercy of the wind. And so for us, we decided, okay, how are we going to continue with our project? We'd already done so much on board because essentially we had a think tank. And our think tank was... Uh, about um, slow travel and sustainable travel. So we were tackling the aviation industry in particular and how it's basically uncapped in terms of Mm -hmm. growth. And none of us really wanted to fly back uh, when we got to Brazil, which was going to be our next stop. 
So we subsequently decided as a team that we were going to work remotely in Martinique for two weeks. And we ended up putting together a team of representatives very quickly. It's a hard life, isn't it? Just working in Martinique for two weeks. I really feel for you. That must have been such a struggle. (laughs) I know. Just like dipping into the water every so often, going to the beach, swimming in waterfalls. It looked beautiful. So stunning. It was unreal. It was, you know, don't get me wrong. Those two weeks were visually very stunning but mentally we were so stressed out and thankfully we have this amazing group yeah we had this amazing group of people that we put together who went to the cop for us in madrid and we worked remotely communicating with them like giving them different actions organizing meetings like it was a huge huge effort so that kind of left us in a bit of a predicament because a lot of people had plans to travel around South America after the COP in Chile. Some people had their own projects and their own, you know, different commitments that they they had around the area. So we had to accommodate a lot of that. And it was the decision that we were going to go to Colombia because a lot of people had cargo ships going back from Colombia Um, Some people uh, needed to head south, so going, I guess, from Cartagena was somewhat more sensible than other options we'd considered, because, you know, if we stopped in, say, Brazil, that's all the way on the other side of the continent. So, Mm. yeah, and I'm kind of working remotely now on a project here, um, and I've basically been in Colombia for, I've been here since December 20th. Yeah, so like a month and a half almost. Yeah, been here a while. So you've settled in quite well now. You've embedded in your projects and things are kind of ticking over in Colombia. Oh my gosh. I mean, 2020 has been a whirlwind in terms of what has happened. I wouldn't go so far as to say I've settled in. Like I'm slightly nomadic and living out of a backpack and basically moving accommodation every, you know, seven days or so. But... Oh, really? I would say I've, yeah, I've gotten into the flow of um, working on this new project, which was born out of Sail to the Cop, and it's called Sail for Climate Action. So Mm. we have the boat, it's in Colombia. So we decided, right, okay, this boat's here. Wouldn't it be great to take Latin American, Indigenous, and Caribbean youth to the UN Climate Conference in Germany? It just seemed like such a wasted opportunity. So we have a team of about six or seven people. With a core team working on this at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's going to set sail in less than two weeks. I can't believe the date has. Oh gosh, okay. Well, this podcast will probably come out as it's about to go. <gasps> yeah. I think. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. How exciting. How yeah. many people have you managed to get on board for the, the return journey, as it were? So far, 17. So we do have a waiting list of people, but the nature of sailing on a tall ship is that it's extremely expensive to charter i mean you know when we chartered it across the atlantic the first time round, it was a lot more expensive because we actually accommodated for its return journey to some degree because the assumption was we weren't going to fill the ship with Mm. people but because we are now doing so we have a discount and that discount means that per person it costs 2500 euros which is a lot of money, but at the same time, for sailing on a ship for two months, that is peanuts. Like, mm. you'll never find uh, a cost like that to sail on a boat 
for two months. It's just unheard of. So, you know, we, we do have 17 people, but we have a huge waiting list of youth who want to join us, but just don't have the funds to do so, which is why we've got our fundraiser and trying to reach out to sponsors and, and all sorts of things. Okay, well, that's because um, that, that's something you've been working really hard on at the moment, isn't it? Fundraising and stuff. I mean, we'll put links to it all over oh, the podcast. Thank you. The podcast does not have the biggest following in the world, <laughs> no, but thank you. you know, we'll, we'll get we'll oh, get a bit of the word out thank there. Thank you. But it must be it must be quite a struggle then, because obviously, like you said, you're working remotely. So I guess everything you're doing is from your laptop, from a yeah. kind of like satellite office, which is moving to whichever coffee shop or accommodation mm-hmm, you're in. Definitely. How, that must be such a challenge, coordinating it all. It, I really admire you. You must be knackered. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it is exhausting. I mean, I think I, I mentioned yesterday was the first time I really just took stock of everything and just relaxed to a certain degree. I mean, I was still working <laughs> to, to an extent, but yeah, it's, I mean, I've literally become a workaholic. I love it. I, I really do love the work yeah. that I'm doing, but I also find that there are certain days where you just don't have the capacity to give it your all and you just feel exhausted and frustrated and you know there are real highs and lows with this you have some highs in that you get one participant who's managed to find funding and that means another latin american indigenous or caribbean youth who can contribute to the conversation that they they should and they do deserve to be a part of absolutely and then you have moments where certain sponsors fall through or you know we've had another obstacle which is when planning the European part of our journey, we have to find visas for everyone. And there's so many things that we have to jump through and they're so expensive and you have to provide letters and recommendations. And it's just a logistical nightmare. And that's, it's exhausting. It really is. And it just shouldn't be this difficult to organize it. And, and it is because I hate to say the system that we're in doesn't really favor climate activism as a necessity or as you know an important thing but i think that's the beauty of of what you're doing though because it has been quite high profile and because it's one of the first kind of really big things of its kind like i do think Mm. or does it feel at least from your point of view that maybe you are paving the way and it'll be easier in the future for other movements and for other projects like this i really hope so and actually the captain of the ship has spoken to Uh, one of our team members about making this a long-term project making this a thing that he does each year because the intercessional conference that we're going to is in germany in bonn so you know there is the incentive to to bring people to europe for that Mm. whether we would have the means to coordinate it at a large scale i you know i'm not really sure and I, i don't really know what the future will look like but yeah definitely i'm hoping that will kind of snowball into something which is a long-term project which allows youth to attend these conferences. Yeah and it's not just great for obviously providing these amazing opportunities for people to travel and be involved um, in these talks and these um, conversations but also just in general for the public to kind of think you know if they have got time to maybe reconsider how they're traveling across the world because you're not the only mm. person who has very publicly um sailed across the atlantic this year or last year now i mean oh god yeah dear, dear greta who else <laughs> she she obviously <laughs> did that as well and, and obviously has the like the biggest following when it comes to all things climate action so i think mm. 2019 seems to be a really interesting year of hey guys look we're doing this 
you can yeah. or at the very least can you think about how you're traveling yeah for sure and the thing that i i really really admire about greta's journey is she did it with such ease and poise but the reality of sailing i mean she she was on the boat for two weeks in in a in a racer boat which was far less comfortable than ours i mean we were on it for three months so i guess it's kind of like a hmm trade-off but mm. sailing is not comfortable i think it's romanticized very heavily and it's an incredible experience and i don't regret it at all but i can't begin to express how uncomfortable it can be sometimes i mean there mm. were nights where i didn't sleep at all because the waves were just so rough or you know people would be so seasick they'd be throwing up i mean one person was even seasick for the entire journey and it's right see that's my fear that's i mean not only mm. do i not have three months to take off work to travel which as yeah. much as i would love to um i yeah. definitely would be that one person on board that was just constantly throwing up for three months i'm I don't think I'll ever find my sea legs. And that sounds yeah. horrible. Yeah, yeah, it is really quite tiresome. I don't know really what I was expecting when I got on the boat. I think there was a part of me that thought, oh yeah, we could revolutionize, you know, sailing as a, a form of transportation. And, you know, I really don't think it's for everyone. I mean, for a start, it takes far too long. You mm. you rely very heavily on the weather. I think it's more of a symbolic thing. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of this symbolism puts pressure on the current system that we have to find better solutions, not just from flying, but from sailing as well. Because mm. honestly, it was uncomfortable. Um, it was extremely hot in our cabins. Like, you know, I basically would have to lie with ice packs on top of me for a prolonged period of time. Gosh. And, you know, the food was rationed. We'd even have old bread crumbled into our porridge in the mornings. Like, it wasn't... Tasty. It it wasn't... Yeah, it wasn't glamorous living. And it was really tough. And people got sick. I got sick, actually, um, the week prior to Martinique. I ended up having really terrible tonsillitis. And then... Oh, God. Oh, no. And then on top of being seasick and sleep-deprived, I was just a shell of a human Bless you, by yeah. the end of it. So, you know, like, I... I look back on it fondly in many respects. I, I do think there are so many beautiful moments like the stars and, you know, dolphins and just beautiful sunsets and all of this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I won't deny that it was the hardest thing I've ever done emotionally and physically. Mm. And being on a 35 meter long ship with 41 people. Yes you don't get your space no you really don't i can well imagine you have to learn to live with that yeah yeah what would yeah. you do if you ever just needed like 15 minutes to yourself is there any way you can go on a ship that size with that many people where you can literally just escape or do you just have to go and just find anywhere where people aren't for a few minutes um i've got a few places the first one is the toilet <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i'm just being really seasick in here guys leave me alone for 20 yeah, minutes <laughs> exactly exactly the shower or the toilet the second place was i was actually quite lucky in that my cabin was you know it, there was only two of us me and my roommate uh, most cabins had four people in them so i could go down there but it was so hot and just really really uncomfortable to be in so mm. i mean if I really needed to, then I'd be down there. And 
then the other place is kind of at the end of the ship. You can kind of just dangle your legs over and look out at the sea and pretend that nobody else is behind you. Oh, nice. And then also the front of the ship in a net called the bowsprit. And that was a really beautiful place to be. But at the same time, you would be sitting there and then somebody would come and sit like two meters away from you and that's as much privacy as you can get Mm. so realistically not very much and yeah we didn't have any connection to the outside world we were confined to speaking to each other which is as beautiful as it is challenging sometimes sure um but yeah that was that was kind of our existence for three months who else was on the ship with you so we had A lot of different youth activists, people who worked for NGOs, some of them were representatives of our sponsors. Our core team was actually, all of them were Dutch, and they uh, founded the project a year and a half ago. And they kind of put together the team through a series of interviews and, um, you know, different connections and partners. So, for instance, one of our sponsors was ProRail, um, so they, they run the rail in the Netherlands, so we had a representative from them who came on board the boat. My roommate was part of a Friends of the Earth program, and then we also had three uh, Belgian activists from Youth for Climate, and then a lot of people from different institutes. The majority of us were, yeah, young mm. As, as far as it goes, like all of us under 30. How did you come to get involved then? That's a really good question. So <laughs> thanks. the power of social media. Um, my friend Nat, who was on the boat, actually found me on Instagram. Ah. And she saw that I pledged to go flight free in 2020. And she messaged me and she said, you should look at this. You should be a part of okay. this. And I basically reached out and I was like, hey, <laughs> I I'm really interested in this project, um, especially the impact of aviation and tending the COP and, you know, my values align with the projects, etc. And they went, yeah, that would be fantastic to have you on board. The only problem is our participants application has just ceased. Like it's, it's, it's ended. We've got oh. all of our core participants, but we do have space for partners. So partnership is essentially you pay the full fee, um, on board the ship which was seven and a half thousand euros so yeah steep price and i was like ah and they're like if you manage to find a sponsor we'd love to have you on board okay and that's where stella came in this is what i was gonna ask stella mccartney yeah okay tell me more about the partnership (laughs) so i first met stella in april last year she actually found me through a series of things that i did for extinction rebellion online And her creative director messaged me on Instagram and said, hey, we'd love for you to be part of this campaign that we're doing. I had no idea what the campaign was about. And they just said, just tell us a bit about yourself, send some photos, you know, etc. So I was like, okay. And then I was actually in the April rebellion, Extinction Rebellion protests in London. Mm. And two of her creative assistants found me at the protests and went, are you Tory? Blah, 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 blah. And took more photos and spoke to me for a little bit and I didn't really think much of it and then I got a call about 24 hours later being like hey can you come to the Brecon Beacons tonight we're going to shoot this campaign so I was like okay nice okay and so yeah as you do of course. And then, uh, ended up hopping on a train over to Cardiff 
and meeting the team and basically got taken on a bus to the middle of nowhere in Wales only to find all of these huge trucks and lights and cameras and everything just like all over the place and I was like what is going on and then I learned that they were shooting for Stella's winter campaign oh, so that was <laughs> yeah it's crazy to have no warning I, I as still well didn't... just to arrive at it yeah that must have been mad yeah yeah it was crazy and then not really knowing kind of what it would entail was also a bit of a like whirlwind and it was wonderful and you know, Stella's a real force for nature and she was so much fun to be around. And then we later found out when it came out that it was actually a film that they were making and the words were written by environmentalist and author Jonathan Safran Foer and then narrated by Jane Goodall. Oh, and that wow. just kind of like, oh. yeah, it was just incredible. And so after establishing that rapport with Stella, I kind of racked my brains a little bit about who I could ask who might be willing to support me and sponsor me and I just got in touch and I said look I've been invited to do this I need this amount of money I didn't expect them to say yes and they were just like yeah we'd like to sponsor you the full amount brilliant oh my god yeah and so on I went to the Netherlands and then they sent me all sorts of things I mean I am kitted out in Stella stuff i mean my water oh, bottle look at you is even Stella, holding a st- oh my gosh instance. you are branded <laughs> i really am and this is a stella top as well that's your pajamas um, and you're wearing it a stella yeah, top brilliant yeah, yeah. <laughs> i know it's amazing Sorry, though to stella. see someone in like such high profile as stella to be kind of making a real like change in her industry for for the environment yeah, like, I mean, it's great that she's putting it on she, one of her core values i love it She's very, very outspoken in many respects. I mean, prior to leaving for sale to the cops, she invited me to Paris Fashion Week to go to one of her shows and to go to this round table that she facilitated the night before her show, which was all about the future of fashion. And she invited some people from Extinction Rebellion as well to have this discussion. And it was so cool to see somebody like that literally pull in some of the most influential figures of fashion into one room, sit them down and be like, this is an issue and we need to talk about it. And that was really cool. And she's honestly just paving the way of doing things which are kind of seen as quite controversial within the fashion world. So... Actually, the main reason I was in Paris was because she asked me to walk in her fashion show. Oh, my gosh. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't end up doing it because basically the people who were also supposed to walk with me, the other activists, one person couldn't get time off school. Other person's passport had expired as well. Oh, gosh. So it literally just would have been me, which would have been super, super awkward. Terrifying. But she's going to make it happen for... 2020 spring so in september she's going to be doing the same thing so maybe i'll be there maybe i won't i don't know yet but i know it's in the pipeline brilliant oh great <laughs> it's oh, been a crazy what journey a, what a ma- so that's basically all come about through your instagram presence then hasn't it because if you obviously were doing all mm-hmm. of your activism uh without social media yes you would still be making a difference but people obviously like Stella wouldn't have wouldn't have found you and you know your Instagram is would you say that's your biggest platform that's your one of your most useful tools then for being an activist and sharing messages and starting conversations and connecting yeah definitely I mean I never really saw myself as kind of falling into that realm I mean I'd moved to Bristol because I had the intention of 
pursuing a career in wildlife filmmaking but I just think I'm way too outspoken to ever really sort of bite my tongue and like only focus on one issue I think I like having my finger in too many different pies and activism just kind of became a sort of therapy for me I think especially joining Extinction Rebellion and then through that I kind of started fostering my presence online and I find it very therapeutic and very comforting connecting to so many different people Mm. through Instagram I mean you know as far as profiles go there are a lot more activists and mine my profile is still quite humble in comparison and you know people the likes of Greta Thunberg have like millions of followers Mm. um but I do think it's becoming a thing now like Instagram climate activists and influencers and if if that's kind of how I decide to brand myself in the future then I'm I'm kind of okay with that because I think that the outreach potential of having an Instagram Mm is really powerful in this day and age absolutely do you ever see instagram now for fun or is it more for message sharing and do you do you see it more as like a job as opposed to like a fun pastime now it's funny because i had this thought the other day and i think a bit of both it's kind of like meshed into one thing which i love and i also find quite troubling Mm. because you can't really disconnect yourself from the work that you're doing I would say I still use it mainly for fun um, because I I don't really curate my content to a certain standard. You know, there are lots of people who are rigorous in terms of the way that they post, the things that they talk about, the quality of the photos that they post. I just kind of post as and when and what I feel like. Mm. I'm not really at a stage in my mind yet where I kind of want to treat this as anything other than just a place where I can ramble and drop some information or share courses that I believe in. Um, I might get to that point one day, but I really don't want to. I think <laughs> I'm I, I'm enjoying the opportunities that it gives, yeah. but I also don't want it to take over my life in a sort of like really restricted and rigid way. Mm, absolutely. So obviously you spend so much of your time now talking about climate change as one of the many issues obviously Mm. that you focus on and things with social media you end up in echo chambers where you often find yourself talking to and with people who have similar mindsets and that's great it's a fantastic tool for connecting with people but how do you talk to and communicate with people who maybe like don't really understand the importance of talking about climate change or like flat out deny it like how do you have those conversations yeah so in terms of the kind of the group of people who aren't really engaged with it, that's a lot easier a group of people to manage in that they might be willing to listen. Whereas I find with climate change deniers, there's just no real incentive for me to argue with them because I just see them getting more defensive and not really budging in their mindset. So I kind of see them as wasted effort. Like mm. I don't even want to give them the any attention because I just think it's kind of a waste of my time and then it's still giving this propensity to them of a value that I don't really think they deserve so I kind of tend to not deal with that so much but I find that the difference between Instagram and working as an activist in real life or like working on the project that I'm working on currently is that in the real world or offline rather there is a lot more uh, potential to influence older generations who may not necessarily have the same sort of intentions and values that I do. 
So the most recent kind of example that I can give is I managed to speak on a panel at the Hay Festival in Cartagena. Now the Hay Festival is an international literary and arts festival um, that tours around the world. And I was on a panel with Rosie Boycott, who is in the House of Lords. Wow. Um, the facilitator was a man named Peter Florence, who I had the joy of speaking to before the event. Turns out he founded the Hay Festival. Oh, wow. Uh, and then he actually ended up inviting me and my group of people from self for Climate Action to go to the Hay Festival in the UK, which takes place coincidentally the same time that we planned our UK tour ah, of okay. self for Climate Action. Right. So, you know, that will give us a, like a huge, huge network of mm. people to communicate with and to network with. And through the Hay Festival, we've met so many people who are so well connected within these realms who may not necessarily have the same sort of um, opinions or insights into climate activism that we do. And so I find that things like that, mm. they are where I feel like I can really make a big difference. I do feel like Instagram has the potential for that, but in terms of like actual concrete changes in the way that people in places of power can know what you do and potentially help in some way or be an ally of the cause, I find that, yeah, those instances, the world still operates on that level. Yeah, it is always seems to be that age old thing, isn't it? It's not what you know, it's who you know and who you can speak to. And networking is so key Definitely. in having these conversations. So what do you reckon, like what advice would you give to everyone back home then who, or, or people who don't feel they're in a position to network in such a way or speak to people, but to still have an impact? So I do feel like Instagram and engaging with that content is a great way to learn and develop the sets of tools that will give you the confidence to be, you know, um, a better communicator in terms of climate change and activism as well, like in terms of the information that's shared, in terms of equipping yourself with the science, of meeting different people online, going with them to protest, these sorts of things. We do need people like that. We need people who are part of the movement. Mm regardless of whether they decide they want to start talking to ministers and members of embassies. You know, these are the people that are, quite frankly, the foundations of the climate movement. If people are feeling like, you know, they don't want to take the weight of the world on their shoulders, just even asking questions or just being present in conversation is still something that you can do. I think when I talk about the importance of offline communication and meeting and networking with people. Mm. I think I'm talking about it in the context of running a, a project like Self for Climate Action. A project like this just wouldn't be able to have the same sort of gravitas if it was only online. Because realistically, you know, my network is kind of limited to a very small group of people and I'm not a Kardashian, you know, so I don't really have. <laughs> you probably wouldn't be on of, this podcast if you were. Millions of followers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the so, Kardashians ever know, want to come on, I wouldn't actually say no. I'd be very interested. Yeah, no. To hear their views on climate change, but that is a that is a whole other thing. <laughs> you know what? Somebody very recently asked me if I could be stuck on a desert island with one person 
who would it be? And I said it would be Kim Kardashian because, first of all, oh. it increases the likelihood that I'd be rescued. People would rescue her. You wouldn't her. be stuck like, she there has the... at all. You'd be there for minutes yeah. and you'd be rescued. Exactly. But I'm hoping that there would be some sort of logistical issue in terms of actually picking her up within the hour so that we'd be stuck together for a few hours and I'd be able to sit her down and talk to her about the climate crisis. And she'd be like, oh, my God, you're so right. And like, you know, join forces. So I would be willing to sit on an island with Kim Kardashian if I could, you know, get her to support the cause in some way because yeah i mean could you it's, imagine it's a sad reality that people like that have a lot of influence and power they do and we need to make the most yeah of i love that i can just i can just picture it so clearly you sitting down and being like look yeah. kim we need to talk about your lifestyle and consumerism okay and then her just yeah. being like what <laughs> that would be brilliant hashtag support self for climate action so um, <laughs> So you, when you were on the boat, you said that you guys formed a little think tank, didn't you, to tackle um, yeah. aviation, the aviation industry. Can you give me the headlines? Like, what was the, what did you guys come up with in your three months of uh, uninterrupted brain power? Yeah. I guess. So we, as part of the think tank, came up with a series of outputs um, that we thought best tackled the issues that we you know, had brainstormed about aviation. Mm. And we ended up producing this report. It's very beautiful. If you go to selltothecop.com, you can find it there. And there are lots of different things that people came up with. Some people came up with campaigns to slow down the growth of aviation. One of the biggest things, I think, was policy and the policies that we wanted to see in place to limit the growth of aviation. Uh So, for instance, kerosene is not taxed. Kerosene is... No, it's the main fuel source and it's not taxed. That's a shock. And then also there are these, yeah, it's crazy. There are these things called nationally determined contributions, which are essentially the amount of um, carbon attributed to certain industries and how much each nation contributes that amount for the industry. And aviation is not accounted for in nationally determined contributions. So if they're saying, hey, we need to slow down climate change and we need to limit these industries because they're causing uh, huge amounts of carbon being pumped into the atmosphere, those things just, people don't talk about it in terms of aviation. It's just not on the list, which is crazy. And so, yeah, so we've pushed for that to be accounted for. And then also the growth of aviation Mm. it is the fastest growing transportation sector there is i mean it's something like only 12 percent of the world have access to flying and you know the majority of people who contribute carbon emissions are based in europe and that's only projected to increase it's going to double in the next 20 years or so and for us that's a big issue you know we're at a point now where yes the aviation industry contributes a lot but we want to think about limiting that growth because that growth is just not feasible in the world that we are currently in it's 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 going to definitely push us over the tipping point mm. and a lot of every a lot of the things that we've been talking about it in reference to the paris agreement and 1.5 degrees of warming within a framework of 1.5 degrees of warming it's just not possible to have aviation continue on the trajectory that it's going and it's a very neglected topic because it accounts for 5% of greenhouse gases emitted and people go, well, that's a small amount. And actually, it's not a small amount. If you think about everything, mm. it's not a small amount. And 
it's only going to increase. So we kind of want to nip it in the bud before it Absolutely. gets... Absolutely. Yeah. Before those percentages increase in proportion. So that's kind of what we we decided to tackle. And the report output as well has all sorts of facts and statistics and figures and suggestions. And then those uh, pieces of information will be distributed to a variety of different delegates within the government. And hopefully they can discuss policies and ways of limiting aviation. I know that recently our team managed to connect with the uh, Dutch government and they are going to review the report and hopefully make some some swift changes. That's exciting. Who knows? Oh. Mm-hmm. I think generally when I talk to yeah. people about um, aviation as a problem in terms of climate change, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, but I don't have time to you know access slow travel i think we're not Mm. in the habit of considering slow travel because you know we work most people who work like a normal nine to five and get what 25 days annual leave a year it's very hard to persuade people to spend half of that annual leave time actually traveling to where they want to go um and you know Mm. i think there has to be some emphasis on what's nearby but yeah but also oh sorry you carry on no 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 it's just um on the point that you were saying one of the considerations we had on board was trying to find a way for the government to integrate extra days of annual leave for people who decide to opt for slow travel as opposed to yes and this is the thing it's so difficult for people to do in part because the connections just aren't as good Mm. it's extremely expensive and it takes far too long and that for me are just all the symptoms of a broken system Mm. so you know while we lobby very heavily for sustainable travel i know within my means for instance i'm probably going to have to fly again in my life i really don't want to and i i am in the process of thinking about you know how i'm going to get back from colombia and i'll give you a sort of example of of why this is such a huge systematic issue Mm -hmm. so I'm not sailing back because I need to be on land to be able to communicate the project. So the option was a cargo ship, which leaves from Cartagena. Cargo ships take about two and a bit weeks. I'm unlikely to have Wi-Fi on board. It's also going to set me back about two and a half thousand euros for a two week journey. Mm. Yeah. And then also the dates just don't line up. That's another thing. You know, I'm working with a schedule that kind of runs every eight weeks or so. So I wouldn't. They're every eight weeks. So I thought. Gosh, I would have thought. I would have assumed. This is coming from someone that knows very little about the shipping industry. um, I would Mm. have assumed that there were ships going left, right, and centre all the time. Yeah. I think from Cartagena, it's a little bit more Mm. troublesome, just in the sense that, like, I mean, it is a major port, but just this particular one that goes to Southampton. Ah, okay. A lot of them go to Europe, but just not to Southampton which is where I'd ultimately want to be dropped off. And then another issue I was looking at, I was like, okay, so if I can't go back this way, what if I take a repositioning cruise from the States? What's that? So a repositioning cruise is essentially a cruise that is, you know, it's done its journey, it's ended up on the other side of the Atlantic, and it has to go back across the Atlantic to pick people up. So it's going to be an empty ship, essentially. And I mean, cruises are terrible. They're terrible for the environment. So it's just like, if I'm trying to make this a symbolic thing and I don't want to fly and there's this empty ship kind of going across the Atlantic, then maybe I should try that. Yeah. And they leave from Florida and from New York. So I was like, okay, how am I going to get from South America to the States? Traveling overland would take months and Mm. it's also extremely dangerous. Uh, Yeah. The only way I'd be able to get to Panama 
is by boat or by flying and by boat it takes five days and then you know the carbon footprint of traveling all the way up overland by a series of buses would be exactly the same if not worse than taking a flight really yeah and then the other issue was i was looking at cargo ships and that would cost me a thousand euros to go from Cartagena to New Orleans. The dates don't line up for when I want, but even if I did take the cargo ship, I'd require a special type of visa, which is different from the US ESTA, which is how oh most God. people get into the US. And it takes six months to process. That is absolutely mad. Yeah. And Your then, hands are tied. Yeah. And I thought, okay, what if I fly to the US on a subload flight? Uh, and essentially the dates just still wouldn't line up. What's the plan then? The plan is to find a way of heading up to New York where I can get a subload flight. I really don't want to fly. Like, I've been thinking about this for the last uh, three or so months, how I'm going to get back, but Mm. it just doesn't allow for anything other than flying. Okay. Well, I mean... Obviously, if that's not, you know, what you consider as ideal initially, it's Mm. not like you haven't spent months trying to figure out the best way to do it. It's not like you've just thought, whatever, I'll just fly back. Like, I've made my monumental journey over here. That bit's done. I'll fly back. No, no worries. Like, I think the world will forgive you um, (laughs) for the amazing work that you're doing anyway, raising the profile of of Mm. all of these issues. But even just trying it, I mean, it's not your fault that the system hasn't made it remotely achievable for you to do that. I'll forgive you, Um, because it is really important for you to come back to be part of the tour from from day one, really, isn't it? Yeah. You you have to pick your battles sometimes. You really do. And I I think one of the very unhealthy things that um, climate activists kind of face is that there is this obsession with perfection, absolute Mm. obsession with being somebody who lives by your morals. But we're all hypocrites. We can't yep. avoid being hypocrites. This whole system just doesn't allow us to be perfect. I think you're so right. I think one thing that people, maybe maybe not people, myself included, are really struggling with is um, almost like a feeling of, well, if you can't do it all perfectly, like, why bother? So yeah. I often, you know, I, I think among my friends and among my peers, um, a lot of people will see me as someone who tries to try and make quite a lot of effort to be sustainable and to be good. Yeah. But then the moment I do something that doesn't necessarily, like if I accidentally forget my reusable coffee cup, but I just really want a coffee, I don't tend to buy a coffee without a reusable coffee cup. But if I do yeah. on that one occasion, everyone's like, oh, hypocrite. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I just wanted one coffee today. I'm having a bad day or whatever. Yeah. And it almost completely wipes out all of the other good stuff that, I try and do just because of this kind of one thing and I think that's such a negative attitude to be having we should be celebrating everyone doing all of their little things whether they're huge and you're sailing across the Atlantic or whether people are just really trying to make small changes because every change does add up to good yeah stop yeah we need to stop focusing on shaming failures because we're human of course we fail we just need to also grow I completely agree I feel like this call out culture of of kind of individually shaming people can be so toxic sometimes. I do think that we do need to call it out to some degree, especially with uh, influential figures who, you know, preach one thing about wanting to save the environment, but their behaviours don't really line up. And we have kind of like, hey, do you know that this is like, you know, Mm. a bad thing? Like people who, um, you know, who are kind of 
capitalizing on the youth movement and being like, oh my God, you guys are amazing. You're so incredible. But then, you know, fly around in pl- private jets all the time. So, yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't mean that they don't care. It's just kind of like a gentle, hey, you can't really talk about this with like utmost confidence and mm. and have people have faith in you if you kind of continue to live like this. So, you know, there are, there are, it's like a really fine line, isn't it? And that's very true, yeah. But I do think for your everyday, like, environmentalist who's trying to just make ends meet and try their best within the system, like, that's just not the place to use your energy to call out. It's just futile, in my opinion. So mm. I just think the energy is better spent, yeah, elsewhere. So what, going to protests, writing to your MP, learning, talking, all mm-hmm. of those things. Yes. Invest your time in that. Yeah, I would I would say so. Brilliant. Right. Well, we've been talking for quite a long time, so I'm going to wrap it up there. But <laughs> yeah. if you've listened to this podcast at all before, you'll know that I always ask everyone who comes on, what one good thing have you done this week? And I didn't give you any warning that this was going to happen. <laughs> and obviously you are doing immensely good things at all times but is there anything that you have maybe done recently that you can share that we can celebrate and maybe our listeners can copy or pick up from or learn something from I think the thing that I'm proudest of this week I mean it's just kind of a bit of an arbitrary thing but just continuing with this project it's a huge labor of love and it's mm. exhausting but i'm going to i'm going to give you something a little bit more concrete and i spoke with this wonderful woman called Luz Sarmiento who is the wife of the head of the Colombian embassy in the UK and kind of talking to her about collaborating and meeting up the Colombian embassy and she has decided to sponsor my friend Vivian who is uh, from the Ahuaco indigenous community here in Colombia and to see someone like Vivian come on board the boat and be part of this journey is just, I'm just so happy. Like she deserves to be there. Oh, brilliant. And she has such a powerful voice. And I I get shivers when I listen to this girl speak. She's so, so powerful. And I just can't wait for her to be part of this journey. So for me, that is the one thing that I want to celebrate that she's coming on board. Well done. That's brilliant. Oh, (laughs) thank you. Yep, I don't have anything nearly as impressive no, to add. No, um, <laughs> no, it's all it's all relative. It's all each stage of life. Like for me, sometimes the victory is getting out of bed. So yeah, know, like definitely each okay. day is different. <laughs> well, my relative one good thing is I've started a new job this week in a different That's city huge. from where I live. That's huge. So yeah, well, That's yeah, huge. thanks. I'm excited. But it does mean that I've had to look at my transport in terms of my commute and I've just opted to go by train because um, there's no way. I mean, I can't drive two hours every day. No, not happening. Yeah. Um, So I've now committed to public transport every day for the rest of my life at this job. (laughs) Yay! That's amazing. Even though the train is mega expensive and always completely rammed and you end up standing up in someone's armpit every morning to get to work. It's an unpleasant and expensive oh experience. National Rail needs are. to step up their game. That's all they I do. can say. They really do. There we go, guys. I know you're listening. You heard it here first. <laughs> yep. And guess what? There's a huge campaign at the end of the year that I'm working on called Rail to the Cop. And it's going to be about getting everybody from London to Glasgow for the UN Fantastic. Climate Conference. Fantastic. So hopefully that puts a bit of pressure on rail companies Good. to pay attention. 
Well, you have my and the podcast support for that, of course. That sounds Yay, amazing. Thank you. So where can people find you and your projects online if they want to hear more from you or find out more about what you're doing? Yep. So I spend a lot of time on Instagram, as we've established, and <laughs> I am at Tori Choi underscore. So T-O-R-I-T-S-U-I underscore. And then just Tori Choi on Twitter. Sell uh, for Climate Action on Instagram, Sell for Climate on Twitter, because apparently the name is too long. Uh, and <laughs> also on Facebook, we are Sell for Climate Action. So, yeah. And then we also Fantastic. have a wonderful crowdfunder, which we are using to support our participants, which is www.bit.ly slash Sell for Climate Action. Fantastic. And I'll put links to all of those up in the podcast description. So Thank whichever you. device you guys are listening on, you can uh, just tap on over <laughs> and have a look. And then, of course, for What It's Earth podcast is on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can send us an email at, oh, this is testing me now. What is it? It is whatitsearthpod at gmail.com. So Yay. if you've got any questions for Tori, I can, I can fire them over. Or if you or anyone else you know wants to come on the podcast and have a chat. We're just at the end of the other end of the internet, guys. We're not far. Thank you so, so much for this story. Thank this has been brilliant to and find out about it. Oh, you're very welcome. You're always welcome. You can come back when you're in the UK eventually. Oh, yes, please. Yes, please. I <laughs> and we'll talk to. about rail to rail to the cop. Oh my god, that would be a joy. I would love to. Oh, brilliant. Thanks. Well, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Mm-hmm.